On today's show, how to get the most out of training, all question and answer. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 135. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. This is a weekly coaching show to help us all be better leaders through improved communication, human relations, and personal productivity. And one way to get better at all of those is to engage and get involved with training. And that's why we thought that tackling the topic of training and uh, getting questions from the community would be of real value to not only the folks sending in the questions, but just about everybody listening. And I have asked someone here who is my favorite training mentor expert in the world, and that is the very knowledgeable, incredibly insightful Bonnie Stahoviak. Hello. Hello. And I would like listeners to know quick that I have so far on our new treadmill desk walked over 20,000 steps today. That's 9.06 miles for those who don't have your steps to miles conversion going in your head. And I feel like I could take on the world. One of these days, we are going to do a show on the importance of moving around and energy level because that's like a huge thing of productivity. It's crazy, isn't it? Speaking of taking on the world, we have a question from Jordan. So we should dive right in. We do. We have so many questions. So we're going to try our best to get through all of these questions here in this episode. So the first question is from Jordan. Jordan says, I'm a young manager in my mid-20s. My job requires training large amounts of staff on software and technology. Many of the staff are twice my age and tend to ignore me when giving trainings. Hmm. I'm not sure if this is because of my age or because I have only been with the organization for five years, uh, as many of them have been here for 20 years plus, or perhaps it's because of the subject matter of the trainings. Do you have any suggestions on how to get through to them? Well, I have several suggestions, Bonnie. I know you probably do too. I'll let you start. Well, I think we could separate this out by thinking about the difference between the credibility issues that you described, Jordan, and the content issues. So Dave, I know you've got a few ideas around how to enhance credibility when not just delivering training, but also leading in an organization. Yeah, I do. And I think that, first of all, you know, I think the central question here, Jordan, is, is it the content of the training, the training itself, or is it perhaps something you're doing and just your mindset of how you're approaching this. And so one of the things that um, that came to my mind right away is what can you do to have the mindset where, um, in the reason I th- I'm honing in on this, uh, Jordan, is you mentioned age here on a number of occasions. You know, We did an episode a while back um, on seven principles for leading people older than you. It was episode 59. I'd certainly check that out because I think the mindset as far as age is really an important one for a lot of us who are in leadership roles to look at because if we if we see that as an obstacle, um, a lot of times we put up obstacles for ourselves as leaders that don't necessarily need to be there. One of the things I would for sure do is if there's a way to is engage the people that you find are causing challenges for you or putting up obstacles to you in the training. So I don't know if these are the same people that you're always training or they're different folks, but I'm going to go on the assumption that maybe, you know, since you're in a management role, you're probably training some of the same people. 
I would find, you know, see if you can seek out some of those people that are giving you the objections during training classes or putting up obstacles and see if you can engage them on the front end of, you know, what is it that you could do to best serve them? What would they like to see as part of that training? I think that would be one way to potentially bridge that obstacle. But even broader than that, I would pick up a copy of How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie's classic book, and just start looking at some of those principles and how you can utilize them in, in making connections outside of the training experience so that um, people are more likely to be engaged with you personally in addition to just the content of the training. And as it relates to the content, one of the things I'd, I'd like to share first is that when I first graduated from college, I started out as a computer trainer. And and to give you an example, I used to drive up to downtown LA from Orange County. So I'd wake up at five in the morning usually and go down to the center and pack up. They didn't even have laptops back then. I'm going to sound really old right now. <laughs> pack <laughs> up the lunchbox computers in the back of my car and drive up to LA and you set them lunch all up. You had lunchbox computers in the back Lunchbox. They were 13 or 14 pounds a piece. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. So we would train on on these lunchbox computers. <laughs> sound so ridiculous. And thinking to how it used to be then in a room of 24 people, for example, Microsoft Word, go to the file menu and choose open and double click the file and everyone moving together in, in sort of concert. That is not how things work today. Technology is far too diverse. People's learning about it is far too diverse and their attention spans, that isn't going to work. And so I could right away see how you might have challenges if your training design is in a group setting like that. Training on technology and software really, really almost demands more self-directed learning. And oftentimes that doesn't have to mean that it's delivered online or via some sort of technology that that presents itself on a computer like a simulation, but but that's usually the best choice. But even if you didn't have the budget for that, or you had to start somewhere else, even just a worksheet that people walk through that's more of a problem-solving orientation that walks them through step-by-step step and then they just ask you if they have questions going through a tutorial is a much better approach for today's learners and also for today's technology. So a couple of specifics I want to give you. If the software that you're training on is a one that's rather widely used, you might want to look into a company called lynda.com. That's L-Y-N-D-A. And Dave will put that in the show notes. That is an affiliate link, by the way. So we'll make something like billions of dollars if you click the link and buy a membership. I'm kidding. I don't even know if we have an affiliate with them anymore, actually. Oh, so maybe we'll, we don't. We'll figure it out. I'll put it in the notes. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll really cash in on, on this. Oh, but I, The $3 or whatever. <laughs> I love lynda.com and they have fabulous resources. But if you're standing up training Microsoft Word, for example, you got to look at an option like lynda.com that you can maximize the economies oh, yeah. of scale and the quality of content that they've developed. If what you are teaching is something that's proprietary in nature or not that widely used, you might want to look into a product that allows you to create what are called simulations. And essentially what it does, and Captivate is the one I'm thinking of, it's put out by Adobe, Adobe Captivate. And it allows you to create either demonstrations where you can demo the software and then then people can watch the modules or even as a simulation where it feels like I'm clicking on the button. So you might instruct me, click on the file button. And then if I click on the file button, it actually moves forward to the next step in the module 
and brings down the menu. But if I click somewhere else on the screen, it says, hey, did you want help doing this? Or did, And you can actually test people that way too, to say, now we're going to test to see that you know how to do such and such. And if they don't click in the right places, it scores them and, and things like that. So I would highly suggest looking into some kind of a, at the very minimum thing, doing some kind of an online demo people could watch versus having them come to a classroom. But if you want to look at something pretty powerful, Captivate is is amazing for teaching software. And I use a product called ScreenFlow. It's for the Mac only. I And I know there's some, um, oh, what's the one for PC? That's PC I met. Camtasia is also another option that's out there. So those are good tools that are useful. And and the other thing I'd say, Jordan, is if you you absolutely have to do it in person, and that's just, for whatever reason, the model that's being used, uh, you may want to consider, you know, what are some ways that you could build in some flexibility within the training itself? I, I taught a class several years ago that the class was, some of it was built around Microsoft Office. And like any software training experience, there were people in the room who knew it really well, and there were people who didn't. So what I did is I built it as part of the classroom experience that the people who knew it really well were set up as mentors in the class and they would actually be paired up with someone who didn't know it as well. So it was more of a, even though it was still in a classroom, it was more of a two to three people working together and doing coaching and and kind of training one-on-one with each other. And that worked a lot better than trying to get 24 people to follow along all at the same pace. So that might be something to try as well. Okay, so we have a second, actually Jordan sent a second question, sort of related. Um, the second question is, do you have any suggestions or, conf- or uh, on conferences that one can go to to expand skills on leadership and coaching? Bonnie, you, have, you had some thoughts on this. Yeah, well, first off, you used the word conferences. I don't know if you literally meant exclusively conferences. I, I have found a lot of value in conferences, but not for specifically what you're asking. A conference to me is a place I go to build relationships and connections with other people with similar interests. It might be a professional one or, or a personal one. And to generate new ideas and new ways of thinking, finding out about new products or services that might relate to whatever the conference subject is around. But when I want to expand a skill, I'm specifically thinking about some kind of a class or some some kind of a coach, something that will enable me to not just hear about a new skill or a new behavior, but to actually start to put it into place in a safe environment and then where I can get feedback on how I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the, um, many of you know, I'm affiliated with the Dale Carnegie organization. Dale Carnegie does this brilliantly in classrooms all over the world. So that's an option. Uh, Jordan, chances are there's options that are near you, um, and you can certainly send me an email if you want some help on making connections with the uh, with the folks who would do that. Um, but it, but it could be coaching, it could be um, something one on one, but something that's going to help you to change your behavior. Even a good mentor might be helpful for you in that. But I agree with Bonnie. I, um, conferences tend to strike me as more of the um, how to get some new, just new information and books and resources and make connections and things like that. So hope that's helpful. Lots of, uh, lots of things there. I'll put all the links here in the show notes, of course. So our next question is from Chris. Chris says, I'm a manager in a large company and managing a global transformation program. I'm at a crossroads and my development plan includes getting more training on the following. Uh, two areas he mentions. Leadership of global teams, both physical and virtual, and strategic planning and organization 
organizational development. Um, and he asks, how does one define and develop a global organization roles, number of people, strategy, governance, teams, processes, et cetera, uh, to develop this program? Do you have any recommendations on books, education, or coaches that may further my development? Bonnie, you want to jump in first here or you want me to go? Okay, so I have a, uh, I have a few books for you, Chris, that would be good places to start. A few of these are on my book list. One of them, uh, the classic kind of strategy book that everyone refers to, it, it's been out a while now, uh, but I think the concepts are still very, very relevant and just great thinking on how you put together organizational strategy is good to great by Jim Collins. Um, and everyone should read that book if they're in business because it comes up in conversations. Lots of people refer to the model and the hedgehog concept that Collins talks about. So I'd certainly recommend that. Another great book that really is all about um, strategy, leading teams of people is Execution by Larry Bossidy and Ram Sharan. It's uh, one of um, Sharan's earlier books, I believe. A great book as just far as how to lead globally, how to give people feedback. It's, it's a great management one-on-one book, so I really would recommend that too. And then uh, what you're talking about as far as doing an organizational change and use the term organizational development, one of the frameworks that whenever I talk to someone that is doing really powerful thinking about leading organizational change and thinking about how an organization can do things more effectively uh, is the book, The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge. Uh, you'll never look at the world the same way again after reading that book. It's one of the books that's on my top 10 list for leaders. And I would really recommend that book. It is not an easy read, but it is a powerful read and one that will get you thinking a lot about how you can affect change within the organization. So those are three I would certainly start with as resources. And then um, as far as coaches, you know, there's coaches for me, you know, when I think of coaching and I've hired coaches before for me, I'm, I'm thinking of who's someone that knows something a lot about this and is good at helping other people to get there. So I've, when I've hired a coach, it's been someone who's already doing something or has proven themselves in an area that I want to get better at and has some skills as far as helping people to do that. So one of the things I would suggest, Chris, is is finding the people in your industry, and I don't know what industry you're in, and your network who are all, have already done something like you want to do, who are the leaders, who are the people who have um, rolled out an organizational change like this or something similar. And I would talk with them and find out, you know, who are the mentors, the coaches, the kinds of people that they'd suggest. The folks I'd recommend, we've had a number of them on the show, Bill Bliss, Tom Henschel, Pam Fox, Rollin are, are some of them over the, you know, over the last, um, I don't know, 20 or 30 episodes who are executive coaches, but they're doing more of the kind of behavioral things for the most part on how do you lead well and, and effectively. So that might be helpful to you. But I would, I would be really curious just from people in your industry, who's a great mentor, who's someone who does it, who's done it well, um, who would be willing to either be a guide themselves or tell you, here's the books you should be reading. Here's the model that I used. Here's the people I was listening to. Here's the publications that I always watched. Here's the conferences that I went to. Um, I would go find you know five or 10 of those people, take them to coffee, have a conversation with them, read their blog if they've got one, find out what those people know, who they're referencing, who they're reading, and then you start to get in the mindset of learning from those people, learning what's worked for them, and then creating your own style out of it too. So, well, that was a lot. 
Bonnie, do you have anything you want to add on to that? I don't. In fact, I'm excited to get to the next question from Susie, which is actually an audio question. So I know we have that queued up coming up right now. Here it is. Hey, Dave and Bonnie, this is Susie Farthing calling from Pensacola, Florida. I host the One Love for Nurses podcast, and you can find that at onelovefornurses.com. First, let me say, I really, really, really appreciate the show, and I especially enjoy it when Bonnie's on the show. So it's good to have you back on the show, Bonnie, and it's always fun to listen when you guys are together. I have a question. I'm going to be giving a presentation in the fall to a general assembly of nurses um, with the Florida Nurses Association. And the uh, premise of my presentation is the potential of using social media networks and platforms in nursing advocacy. So I'm going to walk um, the nurses through the various types of social media platforms and their benefits and how they're being used in advocacy efforts um, and give them some tips and tricks regarding that. But um, Twitter is particularly important in this regard, I believe, as a platform for you know, advocacy efforts. So I would like to walk the audience through setting up a Twitter account and eventually get everyone to tweet something using the conference's hashtag. Is this a good idea or not? Um, Because I know some people in the audience may already have Twitter accounts and be up to speed with that. And it may take others a little bit longer to get through the dynamics of setting up a Twitter account. And I just don't want to lose my whole audience trying to do this. So is this a good idea or not? I'll be listening to know what you think. Thank you so much again for all that you guys do. Thanks so much for the question, Susie. And I ha- actually have loved connecting with you a little bit over Twitter. So it's fun to have you ask a question around yeah. that. I think you're already starting to answer your own question in the way that you asked it. I think you are potentially going to run the risk of having some people who already know Twitter and some people who don't. And I think the real power would be for you in delivering advocacy for using Twitter and and various social media versus trying to teach the how to's. So I think what you could really focus on is inspiring people for the potential that then drove them to actually follow up in some way, be that set up a Twitter account, or if they already have one to start using some of the techniques that you described for advocacy. As a side note, one of the things I've really been motivated by recently is setting up a speaker page whenever I go speak at a conference and Michael Hyatt has some nice resources around how to do that. But one of the things I've really found beneficial is to have a page that has the outline and links to anything that I spoke about. You could have a link that had some kind of a screencast that that had some demos of things and, and other links that would be relevant for your audience and also then build some credibility for yourself, which I'm sure is one of the things that you're looking forward to capitalizing on in speaking at that conference, get some more people listening to your podcast and so forth. So I'm so excited about you doing that. I have mostly used Twitter in the frame of a personal development plan and a lot of things around learning. So it'll be interesting to see what you come up with around advocacy. I'm excited about the potential there because of course it's, it's well used for that too. So I think this is a great speaking topic. A couple of resources to tell you about. There's a woman named Jane Hart and Jane Hart is mostly known in the training field. I always look forward to, for example, every year she puts out a top 100 
training tools that people vote on. And it's really always fun to see what shows up on that list. But she also has a lot of things around social learning, as in social media being used around learning. I think you could get a lot of inspiration for your talk, even though, again, she's more focused on learning than advocacy. But I think there'll be some cool stuff that you'll find on her site with a quick visit. And Susie, I think uh, I echo everything Bonnie said. And if you could take that process you're talking about of kind of walking people through how to set up a Twitter account for those who don't have that and put that online. So that's a link maybe after the conference for people who want to do that. Or maybe you link to someone else who's already done that and put that that screencast together and use your time in person with them to really do the things you couldn't do online to really have that dialogue about the conversation about putting together the strategy and implementing it. I think that would work so well. And your question reminds me, uh, Bonnie, I don't know if I ever told you, but I went to one of these, um, a, a session, it's kind of like you described, Susie, three or four years ago when Twitter was first becoming big, it was a, it was a workshop for coaches. And it was like a one hour how to use Twitter kind of thing. And there were three of us in the room that had used Twitter before, and there was like 20 people who hadn't. And for the three of us who had used Twitter, the whole time it was just people learning how to log in and set up an account. And we were we were just completely disengaged. And the other 18 people basically got the account set up, but they didn't really do anything with it. Maybe they tweeted it, tweeted something, but they never used Twitter after that day because I followed most of those people. And so because the technology piece is kind of the easy part of this, what you really want to do is you want to make the case for why should people be on Twitter in the first place? What do they want to be doing? How are they going to use their strategy? And then you can support them with that technology piece or screencast or whatever afterwards. But I, I think it'd be really cool for you to have that a broader conversation around how here's how to set up a strategy. Here's some people who are doing it really well. Uh, here's let's have some dialogue about that. Let's put together a plan of action. And then the tweet happens afterwards, so you can engage with people then the weeks and months after that online, and you keep the conversation going on Twitter. That would be the real a really cool way to do it. I, just one little brainstorm too that might not be technically feasible, but it, you even could integrate it right there in the room if you thought for sure there were going to be at least three or five people in the audience that were going to be using Twitter. There are tools available to help you actually show it right there on the screen. And so that could be an interesting thing as well. Yeah. Although I will tell you, I, I spoke at a at a a franchise organizations conference a while back and they had all this really cool technology stuff set up. They'd bought an app for the whole conference and they had polling as a part of it. And so I just thought, wow, this is a really tech savvy group. I'm so excited to use all these tools they invested in and people couldn't even browse to the web on their smartphones, let alone vote. And Dave was there with me that day. Actually, he was my tech support guy and it was, it actually, I think, we handled it really well. I think it it didn't deter from the presentation because Dave and I are accustomed to handling differences of what we expected. But boy, was that ever hysterical to me that I thought I was so far off base with where people were technically. But if you knew, if you had relationships with a few people there, you knew they knew how to tweet, they could do it from the room, you could possibly consider something where you actually show them like, here's the hashtag we're doing and ask a couple of questions during it and, and actually show the the stream up on the screen if if that was appropriate. And, and this actually leads to a larger point, which I think we, we, we could make, is it's so easy these days to get caught up in that the tech of, into the technology and how to do something and what device do you have and what accounts do you have set up and to get focused on that and to miss the larger point of 
why are we doing it? So the technology, the device, the software, whatever it is, is just the medium for whatever value is being brought. But you still want to really spend your time, most of the time, talking about, okay, why? What's the reason? What's the strategy we're doing this? And then the technology piece, you can always do that part, you know, provide the resources or here's the how-to later on. Our pastor was actually tweeting about a conference that he was at, and there was some kind of a joke made about I'm I'm not even getting it's not even going to sound funny. He's he's quite a funny guy, so I feel like I'm not going to do him justice. But something around we all came all this way just to tweet to each other, and we can tweet to each other from home. Yeah, it was sort of the equivalent. But I think it's neat when the presenter, if possible, can bring though the technology into the room, versus having people have the individual side conversations out and about. So one of the things in my classes in university teaching, I don't typically allow laptops, which sounds really counterintuitive, but if we're going to use technology, we're going to bring it in and all do it together. So I use a service called Poll Everywhere, which allows me to post a question, get either people's thoughts on it, or it could be a question that had a right or wrong answer and actually bring them in that way. And so it's amazing to have people's cell phones out and not have them completely disengaged and tweeting pictures of something (laughs) to their dog's best friend's uncle, but actually completely engaged in that room and what we're talking about. So anyway, just something to, to ponder. Susie, hope it gives that gives you lots of things to think about. By the way, if you uh, if you're a nurse or you know someone who's a nurse, Susie's podcast is awesome. Uh, she's a, a good friend of mine and someone who's just doing wonderful things in the world for nurses and advocating for nurses and healthcare. So definitely uh, check her out. Okay, uh, I'll put a link to her show in the show notes as well. All right, so next question is from Andreas. Andreas asks. In a world of free online courses and MOOCs, we'll talk about what a MOOC here is in a moment, what type of course would you be willing to pay for? What type of content or delivery would definitely be worth spending your, and he puts in parentheses, not your employer's money on? I loved this question. Yeah. (laughs) I completely loved this question because you really got to the point, which is, not somebody else's money, but your money. Yeah. And I just wanted to share the one that I have is a local one, but I'm sure there's something like this wherever people are listening to the show from. A few years ago, I spent my own slash our own money. Can, can I stop for just a second? Sure. Can we say what a MOOC is first for those who don't know? Because sure. I don't know if everyone knows that terminology. Sure. Uh, a MOOC is a M-O-O-C, a massively open online course Many of them are free, and a lot of universities now. There's several <laughs> consortiums that are what? Who are you like, laughing at me like that? We can tell them what MOOC stands for, but you didn't. You got it a little wrong. I'm I'm sorry. What is it? Massive, say? not massively. What did I say? Massively. <laughs> what is it really? A massive open online course. Is that not what I said? You said massively. <laughs> massively. Oh. oh. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> it was close enough, but it was not spot on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's a really large online course that universities and these consortiums often offer for free and they get 10,000 people involved. Mm-hmm. And a lot of universities are doing this for research reasons because they're trying to figure out how people interact online. So that's what a MOOC is. Yes. <laughs> now that we've made that super clear. Yes. So we spent, I spent money on attending a class that was completely outside of what I normally do, but something I was interested in. So there's a woman here who is named Linda Crawl, and she is a strategic illustrator. And she can go to conferences, meetings, 
whether it's a marketing team that's coming up with ideas for their new product launch, or whether it's educators coming up with a vision for a school, or whether it's nurses trying to plan out how to use Twitter in a presentation, she listens and is able to capture ideas in a visual form. And then they can, it sort of feeds back to you what it is that you're saying, which is really interesting, and then also can be used for archival purposes as well. So I went to a workshop that she and another woman did on creativity. And so we were able to use strategic illustration as part of the exercise in figuring, and it was neat the way that they did it because there were a lot of different people in this class. And so different people could use the structure of the workshop to be creative about their own ideas. So I remember one of the things I, this is, this is some time ago. So I brainstormed around a class. I just wanted to rethink and and reimagine. Mm -hmm. And that was so just neat to be able to do that and then actually start to do my own clumsy drawings. And I think I got better at it. And it was just also neat to be around different people. So that was a really good investment. In fact, she sent out a flyer that she's going to be doing it. They've sort of changed the way that they're doing it. She's focusing now on offering these types of workshops, visioning workshops to women. So it would be Mm. uh, something local and something for women, but I think worth putting in the show notes a link to find out more if anyone wants to listen, because I I would do it again in a heartbeat. It was really, really a fun, good use of money. And and to the other end of the spectrum, Dave and I, I know we're extremely grateful for the money that we've invested in higher education. And the great thing about higher education is that both your learning but you're also really investing in your own brand. And even though there are some degrees that have become rather commoditized, so some people feel like going and investing in an MBA, you're getting more of a generic degree. We've talked about this, by the way, in past shows, so I won't I won't go over is an MBA worth it question now, but just to say I really treasure the higher education experiences that I've had and would certainly look to investing probably not in another degree since I've earned a terminal degree that's tends to be you're done, but in some kind of a certificate for sure. Or who knows, maybe down the line, it's just amazing what higher education can do in a person's life. Mm-hmm. Cool. I love it. I, and I agree with all that you've said. So we'll put links on that uh, for sure. into Linda's uh, work. And I, I'm going to take this question a little differently, a different direction here, Andreas. Um, so one of the things that I do when I'm thinking about spending money on something is I try to, there's so much great stuff that's on the internet for free these days that gives you a chance to get to know someone and interact with them or interact with an organization. So one of the things that I try to do is whenever I'm thinking about investing in something or getting connected with something is I'll try to see if that person has a blog or a podcast or that organization. There's some way I can get to know them. Um, because ultimately, if I'm going to spend money on something in a class, I want to know, is it from someone or some organization that I know and trust? Do they have a good process for the course? Is it thought through? And is there some opportunity also to have some interaction and build some relationship with others? So here's one example of that. Um, This past December, I saw that Michael Hyatt had a class coming up. I think it was called Five Days to Your Best Year Ever or something like that. I'll put a link in the show notes. And now I've been listening to Michael's podcast for many years. He's been on this show before. Um, And I talk with a bunch of people who are kind of in his network. So I know and trust him. Um, The class, you know, it was described as a good process. And also there was some opportunity to kind of get connected with others. And 
Um, you know, the content of the course was basically writing your plan for what you were going to do this year and goal setting. The content I was mostly familiar with, that's not the reason I paid for the class. The reason I paid for it is because I knew that investing some money, I think it was like $100, investing some money would motivate me to go through the process and complete it and engage with it. So I really wanted to um, invest in something that I knew was going to um, was gonna kind of not force me, but really encourage me to go through the process and take it seriously. And I did, and it was a really, it was a really good experience. So, so those are the kinds of things I look for is I, I like, I'm, I'm so much more, um, I guess I tend to be a little bit less big brands these days, Bonnie. I, I like connecting with individuals, see what they're doing, see what they're connecting with and, and, um, and creating and, and learning in so many new and different ways. One of the things that you brought up, I think is essential is the idea of, investing something of your own resources, in this case, money, means you're a lot le- lot more likely to follow through. Yeah. So an example, back to the MOOCs, massive open online courses, they are certainly getting a lot of press attention. But one of the things that happens is people start them and then don't finish them. And I took a class that was delivered. It's the same content that Stanford delivers through their marketing graduate degree. And I took it and I didn't finish it, nor did I, by the way, plan on finishing it. So this is not a story of failure, although certainly I could tell you stories of failures of not finishing things. But in this case, I took it knowing I didn't have the time to fully complete it. But I kind of just went in there and poked around a little bit and, and watched some of the videos. But that kind of thing, when you don't have the well, there's two two issues with that. One is if something is asynchronous, meaning it's unscheduled, I can finish it whenever I want. The lynda.com, I suspect people that buy month-long memberships to lynda.com to get those software tutorials get a lot more out of their investment than people who buy the year-long memberships because you're always thinking, oh, well, I have a whole year. There's mm-hmm. no urgency here. So having something that's synchronous that also we invested in can help with completion rates and following through. Yeah. And I, I do like those courses and things that are more the shorter term and then kind of hit the segmented as a result of that. Good. Hope that gives you some things to think about, Andreas. And uh, let's move on to our next question is from Elmer. Elmer asks, how do you make training accessible to the newest employee while bringing something to the table for the most experienced manager? I usually, I usually try to leave the conversation open for the subject matter experts in the room to share their knowledge within reason on a topic. So there's a feeling of collaboration and not speaking down to them in those situations. Creating a course that is comprehensive is difficult. And uh, I've talked with Elmer before, Bonnie, and I happen to know he's a trainer in his organization. And so he's doing a lot of thinking on that. And Elmer, I guess one thought I have is, you know, this is not always possible to do, but to the extent that you can segment the training for different populations, um, is valuable. So, for example, if you're offering a um, if you're offering a skill set on, let's just say something like presentation skills, you're going to offer that class differently or that training experience differently to a someone who's not had no presentation experience than you would who's someone who's been presenting for ten years. So, to the extent that you can maybe do a different type of class and have different populations in the room for different classes is helpful. So I don't know if that's possible for you to do in your organization and with your resources, but that's certainly something I try to do. 
one thing, and you've hit on this already, I, I always try to do is to provide a mentoring or coaching role for those who are subject matter experts in the room. So that may not mean that they're up doing the training with you, although I've certainly seen that work really well, but that there's some component of within the classroom experience or the training experience where those the wisdom that those people bring, the experience those people bring, sharing stories, um, maybe doing some, having some interactive breakout sessions where those people can do some of the leading and coaching around that skill set. That can be really, really helpful if you're able to uh, set that up as part of the system and the framework and the design in the class. I think one of the types of training that works really well to address a broader audience of people is problem-based training. So instead of me standing up and saying point A, point B, point C, we're presented with some kind of a challenge and then participants are asked to go about to solve that challenge. I'm not a fan. It's just a personal thing, but I'm not a fan of we're lost in the woods and we have two toothpicks and a match and a compass and which things do you want to keep and the life or death scenarios where you're in a boat and only two of you can eat or whatever it is. I, I don't like those kinds of things because I don't think they're realistic enough to what happens in organizations. Some people love them, by the way, but I do like those problems. You, you have no idea what I could do with a compass and a couple of matchbooks. <laughs> some um, some people really learn valuable leadership lessons, and I'm more just thinking it's not realistic. So it 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 requires you to really take yourself out of the situation and then go into a new situation and then kind of bring a skill set back, and it, it's very detached for some people. Yeah. So at any rate, there's a lot of great training that's already been developed that help develop a problem-based orientation. Case study approaches can be really good too, but where the entire group, instead of hearing a lecture, is actually asked to engage in problem solving. And I think what it helps to do too is challenge those with more experience, with knowledge, to extend their own thinking a little bit further and challenge them in some ways too. Mm, good. Excellent. Okay. And Elmer had another question for us too. One of our boss's stakeholder, uh, stakeholders wants us to make our classes archivable or semi-future-proofed so we do not have to constantly go back and reteach the classes one-on-one -on -one to people. What are some of the best ways to do that? So we talked about some of this a little bit already, but I know you have probably a few other thoughts on this, Bonnie. I have a really strong opinion I want to start with, and that is to, at all possible, avoid the temptation of recording the live class and thinking that you can archive it that way. A lot of people try to do that. A lot of past managers of mine have said, Hey, I want you to, let's just record the class. And then, and then that's great. Cause so-and-so can't be there. If the recording of the class was the equivalent to being there, then why are you holding the class in the first place? Why don't we just deliver something great and, and have it online and then nobody has to come. So we could save some expenses and time that way. I would encourage you, that doesn't mean by the way that realistically not everyone's going to be able to be there, but there are other ways instead of just trying to take a classroom experience and then transform it into working online, it doesn't work. Our attention spans are shorter online. We need even more engagement online. And the engagement opportunities that you would offer in a classroom might tend to be boring to watch. Just as a quick example, by the way, the most popular class that is taught at Harvard University is called Justice taught by a guy named Michael Sandel, and that they have, we'll put this in the show notes, they have an incredible website, and just to see this man speak and He's facilitate. Great. He is great. I, <laughs> it is incredibly inspiring to watch, but just as an example, that's a classroom at Harvard. 
it's a classroom I'm guessing that fits probably 400 to 500 people, although he only interacts with maybe the people in the front rows, maybe 50 or a hundred. I'm terrible with estimating people, but that's a guess. But, but they, they film it. The class is three hours and they get the recording down to less than 50 minutes. So even that they're and there, I mean, you, I imagine the editing time is incredibly time intensive and, and would be really difficult to reproduce in an organization, that kind of quality. But, but just to give you the sense, what happens in a classroom doesn't translate well to online. So I'd encourage yep. you to think about them separately, not that it isn't justifiable to want to have another means to transfer the learning besides being there in the classroom, but just that there would be a better way to make the experience online more powerful and actually deliver the learning that you're attempting to deliver. And, and I would go as far as to say that the things that make a in-person classroom experience really great, like dialogue and interaction, and co- those are the kinds of things that are not fun to watch on a video uh, later on. So, And a lecture, the kind of thing that we generally try not to do as much of in an in-person classroom, just lecturing at someone for two or three hours, that's better on video. So the two but, don't but fit But not really for two well or three together. hours. For no, not two for or two or three, three minutes. Or three <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, will, I will say this. If you, if you have no other options... For, for budget resources, I mean, having someone have a microphone and at least capturing the audio is helpful because people can at least listen to that in a car or commute or something like that. But I would stay away from video. But if, if that's the only option you have, but, but spending a little bit of money and thinking about what you can do online that would provide a resource for that is, is, is key. And you've mentioned some of the tools up front. Uh, the other one that's big that we haven't talked about yet is Articulate as products and resources as far as producing online learning. So, you know, it takes more time and resources to produce something online, but once it's there, it is really accessible to people in a lot of different ways and something that's semi, semi-future-proofed to some extent. Okay, so um, let's see. Oh, we had, I think, one other, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention here. Oh, I know. Um, you know, outsourcing of looking for people who have already done this well, too. So, you know... If another option to think about, Elmer, if you guys haven't already thought about this, is who else knows things about the things you guys are trying to teach? So rather than worrying about how do we create something and then archive it, is you know who else has built things that are valuable? Uh, one of our friends, Susan Gerke, has a, a suite of training materials called Go Team Resources, and it's all about how to train teams to work more effectively together. And she, her and her partner have done this amazing job putting together all this great content over years and years of facilitation experience, and they they sell it to people who are training experts, but they give you they do all the manuals and all the facilitation of the guy and they teach you how to kind of do the do the process and it's there. So it's a it's a one way to outsource something if you already know what it is you need rather than spending that time to develop it and archive it, just tap into someone who's already doing that well. As always, a huge thank you to Bonnie for joining the show again, and uh, thank you for your wisdom and expertise, and also a huge thank you to everyone who submitted a question for the show. I was able to use most of them, but not all of them, so special thanks to everyone who did submit a question. Also, of course, to Jordan, Chris, Susie, Andres, and Elmer uh, for your questions. 
And if you have a thought on one of the questions we answered, maybe you have a tool or a resource or a perspective that we did not share here on the show that you think would be of value. And if that is something that's resonating with you, definitely go over to the show notes for this episode and add in your comment as well. The best way to do that is to go to coachingforleaders.com slash 135. That'll take you there. It'll also take you to all the text of the questions that were asked and all of the links for the resources that we mentioned here in the show. So definitely check that out as well. And maybe you had a question that came up as a result of hearing one of these questions or hearing one of our answers. So if you have a question you'd also like to pose to me, Bonnie, the community, you can also do that on the link for the show notes. Again, coachingforleaders.com slash 135. And as always, if you have a comment, a question, or just feedback about the show in general, maybe not related to training, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. You can always submit questions or feedback there. And uh, if I'm not able to include it on the show, I'll, I'll always respond to you in some way so you can get some resource that'll help continue to help you move forward and be more effective in your leadership. Hey, I want to thank the folks who subscribe to the weekly update here in just a moment. A quick heads up for the next few weeks. Lots of great stuff coming your way in the next several episodes. Next week on episode 135, I am going to be welcoming Doug Conant to the show. Doug is the former CEO of Campbell Soup and a former president of Nabisco. He has now dedicated his work to helping develop leaders here in the 21st century uh, since leaving Campbell Soup and is doing his own work and speaking and has a best-selling book out. Uh, I've already recorded the interview with him and it's just fantastic. So you're not going to want to miss that next week, episode 136. So definitely check out my conversation with Doug Conant. Uh, the week after that, I have uh, John Dixon coming in. He is a county executive up in the state of Washington. He's going to be talking with me about servant leadership and how servant leadership plays out in the highest levels of government and business and all the things that he's doing as far as strategy in his organization. Uh, you're going to love his perspective too. He's got lots of great stories to tell. And much more in the few weeks after that, uh, we're going to have a show coming up, a couple of shows coming up on Teams with my friend Susan Gerke, who will be back and talking about how to uh, manage teams and help teams perform effectively. Uh, so just so much coming up. I hope you continue to stay engaged and keep sending uh, feedback. And thank you to all of you who have been on social media and talking about the show and uh, sending out good vibes about the show. I, I just so appreciate that. And it really does help uh, every single time someone mentions something about the show. There's always someone that hears about it that hadn't heard about it before. And it continues to help grow this community. And that's that's great for all of us. And, and, and it's good for me and it's good for the show. And it helps uh, me to be able to attract more and more guests to the show too, the larger this community grows. So thank you, a huge thank you for everyone who has helped out with that. And also a special thank you this week to the folks who subscribe to my weekly update that comes every Wednesday. And that is Frank Preston, Jason Forney, Jordan Davis, Christopher Wallach, Jennifer Kenobi, Lisa Nair, Amy Mishra, Mark Atkinson, or at Kasson, uh, I hope I got one of those, Mark. Uh, Jerry Courier. Hey, Jerry. Good to hear from you. Joseph Verotic, Gary Grimwald, Natasha Merrick, Grant Giseler, Marcella Hernandez down in Mexico. Hello, Marcella. Laura Cristiano, 
Brian Mosier, Justin Stearns, Sylvia Nadeau, Joanne Farina, Shannon Boatwright. Hello, Shannon. And thank you, Shannon and Susie, for the kind words on Facebook. And Ki Mang. Thank you so much to all of you for subscribing to the weekly update. I publish an email each Wednesday. It has two things in it every week. The first thing is an article, uh, a booster shot, if you will, that will give you some actionable advice to improve your communication, human relations, and personal productivity. So that's at the top half of all the weekly e- the weekly updates. On the second half of the update is the notes for every show. So this show today, all the links that Bonnie and I talked about is going to be in that weekly email. It always comes Wednesday, so watch for it. If you'd like to get it as well, go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. Plus, you'll get access to the video overview and downloadable guide on the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others. So check that out too. Hey, have a great week and see you next week with Doug Conant. Take care.